Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that explores the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and delighted to bring you this episode's conversation with Dr. Karen Geiger, who's experienced working across governmental, corporate education, and nonprofit sectors is perfectly suited for the topics about which this podcast is focused. She's going to give you great ideas, uh, not only in developing your own talent management plan as you advance in the sector, but perhaps more importantly, how you help manage others, which is certainly a leadership characteristic required if you're going to excel in nonprofit leadership. Uh, Karen reels off a good half dozen resources, books, and other ideas that we'll certainly link to in the show notes. So enjoy this conversation, and, and I hope you'll think carefully about how you are managing your own talent and again how you're going to help manage others as you move up the path to nonprofit leadership. Enjoy. Karen, thank you for joining me on your path to nonprofit leadership. Happy to do it, Pat. Excited, Karen, because your journey represents such a great combination of skill and experience, including nonprofit that you have uh, experienced yourself as well as the folks you work with. So maybe tell us first about your professional journey, which has incorporated a lot of different sectors, but tell us how you got to where you are now and then maybe how it's influenced your coaching and consulting. Sure. I started out, mine's an interesting journey um, that took some turns. I started out as a music major in college. Um, because my father was a violinist and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. After two years, I realized why I loved playing the clarinet. I was not as devoted to it on weekends that I needed to be. So I um, moved over to sociology and that was a, a major I loved. And that kind of is the theme, if there is one, of my career. So anyway, people in groups and how they behave and how they accomplish things is what Absolutely. I was interested in. Then I, after college, I spent a year in Boston working for the Boston Symphony, um, kind of as a, a pass-through job. Then I went back to grad school because I, I thought my first career was going to be in student affairs because I had been an RA in college. So I got my degree in student personnel. And then UNCC recruited me to run one of those big white residence halls on campus. And I thought I'd be here for two years and move up to the next residence life job. But I realized <laughs> when I was there that I didn't want the next job and that took that was a real milestone for me because I thought I was on a clear path but as you move up in residence life you have to pay more attention to the building and the paint on the walls and the condition of the buildings as well as the students inside and I was more interested in the students inside so I I left my job without another job because you you renew a contract where you don't right. so I ended up in Charlotte without a next job because I'd interviewed in several schools around the country and realized I didn't want any of the jobs. So here I am, 27 or so, thinking, oh, great, my career's tanking. Um, <laughs> but then I, and, and in order to pay the rent, I, were, I became a temporary secretary um, because I had to pay the bills. And I have a friend in grad school who said, you know, if you take what you like about your residence life work minus what you didn't like, you're, there's a field called training. 
And I had no clue about that. So I asked the secretarial agency to place me in training departments so I could just see the people and get a feel for it. Nice. And I realized I did want to do it. And one of the guys, in fact, one of the men at First Union when I was working in the training department there said, you know, I'll mock interview you for the heck of it. So we did that. And he said, um, at the end of the mock interview, he said, I'll just be honest with you, I would never hire you. Wow. <laughs> I thought, oh, Ouch. Why? And he said, because you just told me what you didn't like about your job at UNCC, and that's not going to work because how do I know you're not going to do that to me in three years? So tell me what you want, and I'll figure out you didn't get it, which was really good advice for me because I was Great just being advice. honest. Yeah. Right. So right. I ended up working in the computer room at NCNB back then, and the, Walter Elcock was the man in charge of training back then, and he just came in and talked to me and got to know me and then he called me a few months later and said I hire people not resumes do you want to work here because my trainer is going out on maternity leave and not coming back so it was all kind of a a matter of a path that I was on and I was listening to other people and myself and ended up in training which was just to me the perfect job because I love teaching I love teaching toward a strategy that was important um, and I found my space then when I left the bank I left because of my son. I had been injured in Hurricane Hugo, and my son needed more attention from me. And I couldn't travel right. all over the country um, anymore. So the McCall School called me to fill in for a professor that wasn't working out. And at first I said no, because I thought I don't want to book a whole day of consulting for a one-hour class or an hour-and-a-half class. And this friend of mine called me and said, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> and I said, why? Really? I mean, I know that, but why? And she said, because that's a really good thing on your resume if you're going to be a consultant. So I went back and talked to Bob Finley, and I said, I'll fill in for you. And I filled in for 20 years um, wow. and really found I loved that. And I got my doctorate while I was there because I found that I had some questions I wanted to explore and answer. And then I left, about, I left that about six years ago because I just had a bug to be back on my own full time. I just like being independent and designing things toward a, a goal without dealing with politics and um, a place in the organization. So I'm just really happy doing what I do and applying it to clients. That's fantastic. And, and obviously your consulting practice now combines, I guess, the best of the training and teaching experiences you had prior to that, right? Yeah, and life. Um, I mean, I think people know I've been through some things right. and I'm at an age where I want to deal with all of it because I've been to the point where if you're not happy in your life, you're not happy in your job. So that those issues I'm, I welcome in my coaching and training. And I can kind of tell the truth in a training session because I'm not one of the staff people. Absolutely. Well, and I think there's a lot of folks that are pondering the nonprofit community and need to be sensitive to that. And, and sometimes they have maybe mistaken uh, potential, at least in their mind, for what nonprofit work is like. And I know you and I will talk about that because you have both volunteered in leadership roles in nonprofits. You've worked with a lot of nonprofit leaders. And so I want to get to that and explore what you're seeing on both sides of that fence. Um, as, as you know, Karen, one of the hallmarks of this podcast is productivity. I'm convinced the nonprofit community has a challenge, as any profession does, in dealing with the volume of, of content and activity and responsibility. So how do you keep yourself organized in light of a lot of content and volume and activity in different sectors that you've worked? 
And I'll add something to that. In this time, there's 24-7 communication vehicles. Indeed. That just, I mean, you could be on that all day long. The way I do it, because I have many clients and many different things that I do, which is what I like, but that can drive me crazy. So to I, what I do is I keep a to-do list on my calendar. So I put what I have to do on the top of my calendar, and then I start with the things that are making me the most anxious. I don't care what they are, but I don't need to be working with anxiety. So I start with those and get them done, and then the rest of the day is easier. Then I, I put white space on my calendar. Um, for example, I keep Mondays open for design work and thinking work. And um, if people ask to book me, I usually don't. I may make an exception, but that's when I think about clients and think about solutions and design things. I don't want to be doing that in a hurry. Right. And then if I am working on something that I can't finish, I put the next step back on my calendar. So I have to be sure I'm keeping up with multiple things. So I just have my own system that works for me. Um, and it, and I, it keeps me focused so on Thursday. I might say, call this client to follow up on something where I might not have remembered if that wasn't on my calendar. But the calendar is your primary tool, it sounds like, yeah. for task management, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Um, well, we'll talk more about that. I had another uh, colleague mention that, and you you referenced it too, the getting the, the hard things done first or the things that uh, bother you. Yeah. Uh, I guess that you, uh, she referenced the book Eat, Eating the Frog, um, which kind of is, is a, a relatively gross analogy, but it is a reminder of getting the tough things done first because everything else in comparison seems much easier. Right. Well, let's talk about the kind of, again, we, we've referenced on this podcast uh, three stages, if you will, of, of professional development. Of course, again, it could apply to different sectors, but in nonprofit in particular, a lot of our listeners are considering joining the nonprofit field. I would say, Karen, increasingly you know, coming out of college, even with that as a plan, Whereas you and I perhaps came into nonprofit roles <laughs> for, through a side door mm -hmm. uh, or lateral door. But what are you seeing as you work with organizations and individuals in terms of the, the, new, the newcomers? What, what are the challenges they're facing as they try to establish their kind of professional career? Well, it depends on how they enter uh, the nonprofit field. And I think nonprofit is just an interesting capitalist word because we could flip it and call businesses non-social good. But anyway, that's another <laughs> subject. <laughs> um, that's an interesting I, comparison, yes. Uh, but anyway, um, I think that one thing I see a lot, there's a guy named Ram Sharan. I noticed you had one of his books on your reading list. Absolutely. He wrote a book called The Leadership Pipeline, where he differentiates between seven roles that you take on if you're going up in an organization. Most people don't go through all seven in their corporate life. They probably go through the first one, two, or three. But when they move into a nonprofit, let's say, executive director role, they're at the top phase, which he calls enterprise manager. And that involves communicating with many constituents, um, working with the board, um, setting direction, communicating through different levels and with the outside. And very few people in corporate life have had that experience. So they may think that they have high quality performance, which they probably did, but it's at a different level than is required. And I'm not sure many nonprofits really look at all that. Like they can learn it, but does the nonprofit board know 
what they're looking for specifically and who's got that. But I think the, the biggest leap, I think, is from early management experience or mid-manager experience in a corporation to enterprise management at the nonprofit, which is a whole different smoke. That's a, a great way to point. And I guess two issues there. One, the readiness of the individual. And, and I, I would uh, argue that most nonprofits don't have a lot of the teaching and learning that you've experienced and, and done in your career. So they're, they're in a bit of a, a challenged environment right away. And you also referenced, you, you think nonprofit boards often either don't understand or overlook that element of, of leadership for an early, early stage professional? Yeah, I think there are a lot of proxies. Um, and first, the question is, um, are they unified about what they want in an ED? And is that based on where the organization needs to go? So there's a strategic question to ask before they even start the search. Um, like, what is, is anything going to change in five years? And what do they need there for? And do they need new roles in the organization or different skills? So first, the job needs to be clearly defined. Then they can look for skills across other settings. So if you know the skills you want, like that Walter that hired me, if you know the skills you're looking for, it doesn't matter where the person came from. So I think there is an opportunity for corporate people to move as long as all that's been clear. And if the board is functional, knowledgeable about the market and their nonprofit mission, what they want in an ED, then I think there's a chance of them sourcing the right people. But is the mistake you see they, they're too focused on the resume and not really on the skills? Is that where I'm you think even, this yeah, I, problems yes. occur? I th it's usually a proxy for experience and sometimes social identity. Like there's an issue that's being talked about in Charlotte right now about how few African-American executive directors there are in nonprofits. Yep. And some of the conversation is about, well, people think they have to raise money and white people have money. Well, there's a whole line of reasoning there. So are you being, are you looking at skills or are you using social identity as a proxy? Um, so that's one issue the board needs to face. And second of all, experience does not equal wisdom. <laughs> so if yeah, you, right. we, I, just, I have a, I'm cynical about best practices because best practices work with the culture it came from. If you take the best practices out to another culture, it won't work. So I'm not sure that experience is a proxy even, but if you're looking for skills, um, I was just talking to someone yesterday who's very young and she's looking for a job. And I said, you know, even when you are a server in a restaurant, you have skills. I wouldn't put that down because if you need to interface with customers, if you need to represent the organization to customers, that's what you're doing as a server. And you could talk about how you do it. I wouldn't put down that experience. Interesting. Well, and that leads to my next question was someone comes to you. And, and again, I know you're running into people like this. Hey, I am interested in the nonprofit field. Is that how you would advise them uh, to, in essence, translate what, what are our skills and experiences, but perhaps in a way that is, you know, more relatable to the nonprofit? Well, I would ask, this is my coaching. So I, first, I'd ask why. Why are you interested? Right. Um, are you moving towards something or away from something? And that's an interesting conversation usually. If they don't feel meaning in their life from their bank job, for example, a nonprofit job may not give it to them. So what is right. the meaning they're looking for? Um, then if their answers make sense, I would say talk to people already in the role they aspire to and ask them what their days are like, what they find most draining, what they like the most, and listen. Don't 
answer, just listen and take that in. And then, are, is the non whose is the nonprofit serving, and is this nonprofit serving them well in the short and long term? There's because any but any role in nonprofits can involve some fundraising. Um, so so is the organization on solid footing? So I think there's a lot of questions to ask. I think corporate people don't realize the difference between having your money available in the organization versus going to raise it outside. And that's a huge difference. Uh, great advice on several fronts, Karen. And we've talked about this on the path in terms of one, starting with the why and, mm -hmm. and being clear, because I think sometimes the why in someone's mind is, is obviously not the same as the reality of working for a nonprofit, even though their intentions are strong. Um, love your comment about, I guess what I'd call strategic networking, um, identifying yeah. those two or three people that are in a role that you think you would like to do, but sit them down and make sure you ask good questions, right? Because you might, you might imagine their job is uh, one thing, but I find nonprofit leaders are, are comfortable sharing the reality, and it, it's not always easy. Yep, and and that's when they can learn about what it means to be an enterprise manager. Um, if you talk to an ED, you'll find out, you might find out, that they have to work with with multiple bosses. I mean, just having a board is a different experience from a corporate life. So how do you deal with 12 to 15 people who are all your boss? Um, and they change every few years. So even that is a huge leap. Well, and Karen, you, you have been a board chair, a board leader. Mm -hmm. How did you, when, when you were wearing that hat, did you have kind of certain philosophic approaches to the staff you were working with and obviously not hiring all the staff, but certainly maybe at the executive level you mm -hmm. were involved. How, how did you kind of approach that task? Well, we, I came onto a board that was, which is, a, I think this is not unusual, but the board was too far in the weeds of the organization. Yeah. And the, the staff was using the board as a volunteer base. So um, I felt at that time in the organization's life, the board needed to be much more strategic and be serious fundraisers because we, need, we needed to move the building literally out of a, pl a floodplain. So the board members, when I came on, were not giving money to the school, they were helping the staff at events, they were providing refreshments for student award ceremonies, yeah. and that was that was seen as good. But we needed to really up it a notch, and so I, I did some things that were difficult to do because all these people had children in the school, they were motivated, they loved the school, but I said, we can't go out and raise money if 100% of us aren't giving. So if you're not going to give this year, I need to ask you to step down and keep volunteering, but the board needs to shift. And I didn't do it that quickly and easily, but I had to explain what the strategy was and why and bring the staff with me and really make the case uh, over some time so they understood the basis of it. So nothing I did was um, outside of the strategy of the school and what was best for the school. Um, but I, I mean, I came in and they told me that they wanted me to be the chair because they thought I could... I was a change agent, right. and I think maybe it's that I don't always care whether people like me if I'm doing the right thing, <laughs> but that's not always easy. <laughs> we need that. No, yeah, it, right. it, it, it's not. Yeah. But I, I wonder if that uh, that kind of board experience would be very valuable for someone who's considering the nonprofit profession, because again, I think a lot of folks approach their volunteering and even their board role with, this is going to be a feel-good exercise. I love the cause, therefore being on the board. 
and then taking it a step further and gosh, if I could work here, this would be even more feel good, but your leadership on the board kind of reminded them that, no, this is not always going to be just fun. Right. Right. Nothing's always fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. so I guess that is a life lesson we should all consider, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's the, that's the why question is what are you looking for? And is this the answer? And people do now, we look for easy answers more than we used to, I think, but you want to change and a job's the answer. That's not always the answer. It might be that you need to stay where you are and make a shift in how you're doing it or change something about your home life or your time management or your work family balance. The job is not always the solution. But if you do the research and find out that, yes, you're ready for a challenge, you want to be an enterprise manager, you're interested in figuring out how to work with multiple bosses, you are interested in looking at the system that drives the nonprofit mission, um, sure, that's the kind of executive directors we need. Well, and let me take that one step further. Again, as a board leader, how are you evaluating your executive director? We've got listeners, obviously, that are exactly that, executive directors trying to navigate the dynamic with their board leadership and obviously the critical role that they play in evaluating them. What were you looking for in your senior leadership as a board chair? Well, we needed at that time to have someone who – that was somewhat unique because the the mission was shifting a little. Um, it was a school that was run by a former Sisters of Mercy nun, and right. she was saying all children are God's angels, which we certainly agree with, but that's not an admissions policy. So we had to put some structure in place in an organization that wasn't used to it, um, and that the executive director needed to do. We couldn't do it. So we had to say... Um, we would like to see from you what the admissions policy is and how that's affecting our numbers, how that's affecting our revenue. And she had to kind of become more of a business report person at the board meetings. Um, And I had to stop the board members from getting into the school um, too much. And I think all of them were parents when I came in, including me. So that's a different role. We need to put boundaries around it. So I'd say for people, for boards, frequently boards, want to like the ED and the ED usually is really good at presenting a happy picture to the board. But I worked with an organization where we changed the board from a sit back and clap when the staff presents board to one that thinks with the staff. And that was a lot of changing for the board and the staff. Because most board members want to put a board on their resume or have, they care about the mission, but they didn't realize all the thinking that goes with it. Uh, But there's, it can be a wonderful experience if they sit back and say, okay, this is something that's happening in the marketplace. What is our approach going to be? And the marketplace can be the people they serve or their employee base or their demographics they're hiring from. That's fantastic. But it, it again is a reminder to the board and the staff indirectly that if you're going to join this organization, I expect you to put your thinking cap on and and there's more to it. And that, um, well, I, we could definitely unpack that further on the board side. Let me go back, however, to the staff side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you've given great advice for someone considering the nonprofit field, particularly those that came from maybe a lateral entry. Let's mm-hmm. go back to now that I'm, um, I'm on the path. I've entered the nonprofit field. I want to climb the ladder. I want to aspire to leadership. You know, how do you advise? Uh, perhaps this is your coaching hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to climb the ladder. 
how do you help me assess where I am and move toward goals of, of senior leadership? That's a really good question. It's frequently one that I have in my coaching clients. First of all, what's the ladder and what does climbing it look like to you? Right. Um, and what Ram Sharan says in his book is that most organizations think that it's a sequential vertical ladder. But in fact, it is not as you move up that quote ladder, the jobs really change in their values, the way you spend your time and the skills required. So I'd have a long discussion about what is it that you want? What do you feel is underutilized? Because that's usually the motivator. Um, and how could you show that now uh, in the job? And then who else needs to know that you would like to use more potential? So it's, it's more, I mean, what coaching gives you is you can step away and look at your own career compass. Um, and sometimes it's not moving up the ladder. It might be going deeper into a certain issue. Um, there's a tool called Career Anchors you can get on Amazon for $11 that wow. has you think about what is it that drives your career from the inside? Um, because the organization knows what it wants from you, but do you know what you want from it? And there's a lot of thinking to do there. I mean, I personally was at a point at the bank where I was being offered executive level roles, which the bank thought was a gift to me, but I was clear on the fact that I like being on the ground training and I wouldn't want to manage other people who are doing what I love. And that was kind of anathema at that point. Right. But I was, I knew that I didn't want it. And if I took it, I'd be happy for about 30 seconds. And then I think, oh, the way I'm spending my time is not enjoyable to me. So, that's a, and that's something that in a coaching room, someone can admit. Sometimes you can't admit that to your boss. That's a great comparison um, to, I see a lot of nonprofits, um, on the, the assumption by leadership, perhaps board or senior staff, that, well, you've been here a long time, so we assume you must want to uh, move right. up to the management level. Right. And, and I see, and you have too, they're, they're fantastic program people in nonprofit organizations who have been there, there a long time. Maybe they don't want to be the executive director, but they're the most senior person standing. Right. Uh, I see that as well in the fundraising profession, where there's sometimes an assumption chief fundraiser automatically wants to be the executive director. And I guess your point is these folks don't necessarily want to aspire to the same ladder that others assume they do. Right. And if the board and the executive director are very clear on what each job requires, and one of the tools that I provide, I, I have another bucket of work where I provide tools for talent management to other people. And one of them, you could take each role and define it really clearly so that even after a year in a job, I would know what it means to move into the chief fundraising officer job. And I'll tell them early on whether I want it or not. Like too often people wait till they have a vacancy and they have that conversation then. But that, if that's done all the time, you can have those conversations at every salary review and say, what do you Great want to do next? Um, and it's not, the answer is not always a job. It might be an assignment, might be a shift in job responsibilities. But people can know and have that two-way conversation their whole career. But would you agree? I, most organizations that I interact with don't have that conversation. You know, the, the right. annual review is very kind of formulaic right. and just a, a review. And I don't know, do you think directors, uh, are they fearful that maybe the person is going to say, well, hey, I want your job <laughs> or I want to. I well, want you to better hope they do. Ahead. <laughs> exactly. Well, Succession planning has that glitch to it, that people feel like they'll be replaced, so they resist putting good people up. Right. But the, the subject that you're bringing up about feedback is 
an interesting one right now. And you'll see in the Harvard Business Review, there's a lot of debate about it out in the field, which is really interesting. Yeah, there was tell a, me about a, it. A cover story said feedback, I think why feedback fails. And they were saying it's not useful, we'll stop doing it. Um, and then other people say, no, it's not it that's the problem, it's how we do it that's the problem. And they're saying that the old way, which is to focus on individuals and their personal performance, um, focus on giving feedback to people. So in a review, you're giving feedback to your direct report. You get it once a year. Um, now we're saying the focus should be on asking for feedback, focusing on individuals as members of a team, um, instead of focusing on just the individual's work, because we all do our work with others. Right. And then an interesting thing that's coming out is excellence is recognized as a unique combination of competencies that are attached to the person. So the example um, is that Marcus Buckingham does does a wonderful YouTube video about the video about this. But he says, you know, if you want to say what's funny, you would look at, um, you know, Steve Martin and you say what's funny is sticking an arrow through your head and being silly and jumping around the stage. But then you say, well, what's funny might be Sarah Silverman, which is a serious kind of dour face and a cynical um, verbal pattern. So funny means lots of things to us. But what is excellence? It's the same question. Well. It might be attached to Patton. It might be attached to Karen. And Patton doesn't want to copy Karen. Patton's doing it fine the way he does it. So feedback and reviews need to be completely, I think, redone. And I've worked with several organizations to do that. That feedback should happen all year round. Right. Constantly. So that at the end of the year, you just have a summary of the conversation and the, a two-way conversation that talks about, all right, given what we've talked about, you like what you're doing? Are you motivated? What do you want to do next? It should not be the, oh, my God, I have to give feedback now, which is why it's so tense, because it hadn't been done before. I completely agree. And I I see more avoidance than even yes. awkward conversations because both sides just avoid it. But it sounds like, again, you're if you're advising someone as they seek feedback from their boss, you say they should be proactive. Obviously, don't wait for the boss to come to the annual review meeting and tell you how you're doing. Right, and ask for something specific. So, like they could say to your example, eventually I'd like to have your job. What do I need to do to be able to have it in five years? That's a good question. Absolutely. And I would give the boss time to think about the answer. Don't demand on the spot. But don't just say, how am I doing? Um, but say, I would like to work on this. What feedback do you have about how I'm doing it? Or could you be my, could you, could I work with someone who's going to watch me on that? Um, or I, if I want your job, you don't have to say it like a challenge, but you could say, I see, like, I'd, I'd like to think about having your job someday. Right. What's right. involved? So there's many ways you could have that conversation that don't have to be threatening. Well, and it strikes me. I mean, the reality is, of course, someone that has leadership potential could indeed leave your organization. And, uh, of course, bosses that bury their heads in the sand and try to prevent that are, are foolish. But if you create an environment where that kind of aspiration is okay, you're going to be an organization that people want to work in, right? Even if you lose yes. some people, you're only going to create an environment that others want to work in. Well, and I think back in my days at NCNB is we, pay, we had low salaries, young people. And that became our HR strategy, that we were seen as a training ground for people. Interesting. One day I was kind of laughing. I looked around and said, where, is, where are the 40-year-olds? And I couldn't find them because <laughs> they would leave. But we were thinking, great, you want to move on to greater things. We have trained you to do that.
So a question you didn't have on your list for me was, what should the exit experience, do you know what you want the exit experience to be? And these that's days with all the moving around, is that's a, something you could think about is if someone leaves, great. What do you want them to leave with and what do you want them to think about you? Because you can, for a nonprofit, you can have supporters out in all kinds of jobs. See, that's fantastic. And I, I would agree with you. I don't think any or very few nonprofits are thinking about that. But all of your former employees, in other words, become ambassadors one way or another, don't they? Yes, yes. And if we're not sensitive to that experience as they exit, uh, it could come back to haunt us. Yeah, and exiting is not a horrible thing. Um, if you've had conversations with people, it shouldn't be a surprise. But people, it triggers their abandonment issues. Um, but exiting is very informative. Um, so exit interviews are critical. What did they experience at your organization? Did they get what they needed? Did they want something that you couldn't give them? And we should learn from that, shouldn't we? Yeah. And not yeah. just, and I think too often we just kind of close the door and try to keep moving without really pondering that reality. Yes. Um, uh, great stuff, Karen. I, I guess one more question is, as you evaluate talent, coach talent, are there certain, as you think about nonprofit uh, aspirational leaders, are there certain characteristics you're looking for or organizations with which you've worked as they ponder senior leadership? Are there certain characteristics that really jump out? I would say someone who is um, comfortable with themselves, meaning they can ask for feedback and receive it and stay in the conversation. If they're threatened by feedback, they're going to they're going to die young. <laughs> Yeah, um, good so, point. And they'll be getting lots of feedback um, and and people who are looking at them. When you're an enterprise manager, everything you do is watched. So that needs to be something they're ready for. Um, they also need to understand that communication has many levels. Like you can talk to someone individually. That's one level. An email is another. A message throughout the organization is another. A conversation with the press is another. And you need to know how you want to present yourself at each of those things um, and how what you say has to be carried out inside the organization. So if, if you think that you're a charming person, that's not enough. Right. Um, there are many ways to communicate, and you need to be more strategic about communication. So all that can be learned. But again, someone who's a learner and who's willing to realize, recognize that they don't know things, I think that's table stakes. Uh, uh, fantastic. And so evidence of, again, the ability to, to take and process feedback without shutting down. Yes. And yes. evidence of a learning plan, right? Or, or evidence of, of ongoing learning abilities, because certainly in every profession, things are changing rapidly. Yes. And, yes. Uh, no matter what you're doing now, right. we have to be continuous learners. Well, Karen, let's move to something you're particularly focused on and good at which is you well, describe you. it a, a talent management strategy. Mm -hmm. How might that, what is that? And how might that apply to nonprofit leaders? Well, Deloitte just came up with a new, three new words that I like. And one is, you, well, I'll add to it. But the first is to plan. The talent management strategy is to plan the talent you need to accomplish your strategy now and in the future. Yep. And that's what we said before is something that was often not done. But first, the planning has to happen. Then the three that Deloitte put out are access, curate, and engage, which I think is interesting. And accessing is how do you tap into the capability and skills across your enterprise 
um, and outside your organization. So it might be that what you're looking for is in your organization in a different role. Um, and move my microphone. Um, and it, and also then you can also look outside. But where are you looking for your talent? Um, that's accessing. Curating is really how do you provide development throughout the employee's life? And that doesn't have to be training. Um, it can be job experiences. So if someone wants right. to work on something, give them a task force to lead or give them a board committee to staff. They can then learn what it's like to be with a board um, or interact with board members. And so being um, intentional about what the person wants to develop, why they should develop it, how it's relevant to their job and their career path, that's the curating part. And then engagement is a huge issue. Now, if you've read the Gallup work that's coming out, they're saying like some huge number of people globally are not engaged in their job and they're looking for other jobs. Oh, yeah. um, so how do you interact with and support your workforce, your teams to, to develop compelling relationships? And now that involves um, uh, remote people because some right. people are working with people they never meet and see. And I'm noticing, which is wonderful as a consultant, I'm often brought into the culture of the organization now more than I was before because I'm considered part of the team. And that's good thinking because I kind of am for that task. So all that is important. And then developing an exit experience strategy. So if people leave, what do you want them to say? Because for a nonprofit, that's important. So I'd say the talent management strategy is all that. And what it takes, you haven't asked me this. Do you mind if I ask myself a question? <laughs> Please, self-interview okay. as, as you, as you <laughs> need to. You. So what does it take for the organization to do all this? All right. uh, first, you have to focus on which roles are critical to the strategy. I'm not sure a lot of boards do that um, with the executive director. They don't need to manage those people, but they need to know which ones are critical because there's something called critical turnover. You don't care about turnover necessarily, but critical turnover you care about. Absolutely. Um, then you're clear about what the existing culture is and what you want the candidate experience to be in the hiring process. Um, we used to say at the bank that the interview process, they're, they're becoming customers just like they're becoming employees. So even if we don't hire them, we want them to have a certain candidate experience. Then, like I said before, knowing what's required for each role, and I have a tool that helps people do that. Process efficiency, like how many vacancies do you want to have at any time? How much time you want to use them to fill? And then onboarding and performance assessment, um, involvement and commitment from hiring managers. And then, like I said before, understanding racial and other social identity dynamics that may be used as proxies. So it's a very complicated process, but if you have commitment to it, it can be really educational. Right. Fantastic advice uh, across several areas. Obviously, processes that I think, frankly, a lot of nonprofits don't have, and I'm not just picking on them. They don't have, in essence, the HR kind of infrastructure but there's no reason that a, a good staff and board can't come together and create some of these dynamics that you describe. Yeah. Obviously, advice for staff and board in general, I think, is compelling. And you mentioned the, the phrase that was it critical turnover. Is that yeah. the phrase? Yeah. Yeah. But in, in the nonprofit field, particularly as it relates to fundraising, there are numerous studies that confirm fundraisers are turning over at a rate of you know a year and a half, 18 mm -hmm. months or something like that. And I, I'm assuming that would fit your definition of a, a when your chief fundraiser leaves, that's a critical turnover issue, right? Well, yes, and 
to for me that would bring up some questions like what did have you been talking with them about what their philosophy of fundraising is and is it working with the market i mean i've right. seen some demographic research i'm not a fundraiser but i'm i'm hearing that baby boomers give for different reasons than millennials well right. is your fundraising strategy matching that demographic reality or was it someone who was trying a way that was a hammer thinking everything's a nail um, so if they leave the question is what do you what's going on and what do you need to replace them with that's a great point and a lot of the organizations with which we work i think struggle because they it is the hammer and nail analogy that you just referenced it's one size fits all fundraising. Hey, you just got here. We need you to raise a lot of money. It's it's all about a bottom line equation right. as opposed to some intentional discussion around who are our donors and how do we best engage them? Because indeed it may be different. Yeah. And I think that fundraising fundraisers from the, um, this is from the outside for me. I know you're on the inside of this issue, but I think if a fundraiser leaves, that's a great opportunity to rethink your your fundraising because I think that field is changing dramatically. Absolutely. So it, it's almost like if you have fundraising experience, you're at a disadvantage unless you're a learner. <laughs> you well, to your earlier point, exactly. Yeah. You, you need to interview a fundraiser that have the make sure that they have the requisite skills, but also a curiosity, right, to learn exactly. about new trends and new activity. Exactly. Because my father-in-law used to say, you must like that more than your money <laughs> when, whenever I'd buy something. Well, that's what this the mission-driven fundraising is, is I, I like your mission more than I like my money. Well, what does it take for me to part with my money about your mission? There um, it is. Yeah. Karen, it's been fantastic. You've, you've uh, gone after all the topics I was hoping you would. Uh, any kind of final advice, again, and maybe it's with your coaching or consulting hat, as you think about the nonprofit sector, you've covered every phase I was hoping you would, but any other kind of advice that you might offer someone considering or someone who's already in this field? Well, I just say do their homework. Like, how functional is the board? Um, I've worked with nonprofits where the board was not clear on what they wanted from the executive director, and therefore the executive director got hit from 12 sides with different expectations. Absolutely. So are they unified in what they want and does what they want make sense? Um, what's their fundraising history? Has it gone well? Um, if it hasn't, why not? Um, if you walk in as an ED and the fundraising has not gone well, that's got to be your first focus, I would think. And what's the health of the executive team? Do they like it there? Um, are they well matched? Are they at a point in their life where they want to stay or do they want to go? Um, and I have, I have a, a ringer question, which is, my question, which is, is the board interested in looking at the root causes of the problems this nonprofit solves and their own role in that so that the problem might go away? So we talk about, you know, feeding the hungry. Right. Why are they hungry? Um, and what are, what can we do about the root cause that might mitigate the people coming to the doors? Um, and that's never an easy problem. But if the board really wants to solve the problem, we can get away from what they call toxic charity. Indeed. And really look at how we might shift some of the societal values so that we don't have these problems. I wish more nonprofit boards would do just that, but I agree yeah. with you. I think a lot of them, and understandably, they're volunteers. They just perhaps don't want to take it uh, as far as you're suggesting. But if they were really committed to the cause, they would. And hopefully well, more yeah. will do that. And I, I have said that to boards. Is How do you recruit board members? And very often they, they say, oh, this is fun. 
this is really a good mission and they don't say what exactly they need from the board member. Indeed. And well, they've so set an expectation. One. They've right. set an expectation, haven't they? Right. Of right. limited involvement. You're just a volunteer. Right. And a volunteer could be a lot. <laughs> uh, needs more clarity. Um, Karen, you have uh, provided resources throughout uh, every topic. I will certainly include these in the show notes. Are there any of the books you, you've referenced several that I've jotted down here, but any other that you would particularly recommend in light of the topics we're covering? Well, there's one that I like for anybody, nonprofit or for-profit. It's called How the Way We Talk Can Change the Way We Work. It's just a fantastic book about the way we think about things. And I think everybody needs that right now. And I personally find it valuable that if we are talking about something and we're using words um, that are not, we should question how we're even using words, but the book is easy to understand. Bob Keegan and Lisa Lady wrote it, who will do great work, but just that's one I'd say we could all do. So all the nonprofit missions relate to this. Karen's fantastic. I've just added it to my reading list. Cool. I've got uh, one that's adding, but that sounds like exactly uh, something that would benefit uh, me and many of our listeners. Um, Karen, if they want to find out more about the good work you're doing, obviously your website, or is there any other areas I, you would call someone's attention that we can put it in the show notes as well? I think the website's a good start. Yeah, because I know you're producing, I guess you have kind of an e-newsletter and you yep. produce all the content as well, don't you? And you can sign up for that newsletter on my website. Yep. Well, I would encourage our listeners to do just that because while Karen's experience is not just nonprofit, it is certainly applicable to the path to nonprofit leadership. Karen, thanks for being with me today. My pleasure, Patton. I'm sure you can now see why I was so excited about having Karen on the podcast and the value she brings to all the aspects of nonprofit leadership we're discussing, not only your personal journey, but also the journey of those you're helping guide along the way. Once again, there will be great links and resources available on the associated webpage for this episode, and you can learn more about Karen and the great work she's doing through her firm, Karen Geiger & Associates. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you'd share it with someone else who's also on the nonprofit leadership path. And if you're feeling particularly generous, write a review and uh, on whatever uh, podcast platform you have listened and help us share this content with others in the broader nonprofit community. Thanks for the great work you're doing for whatever nonprofit cause is important to you. And I look forward to seeing you next time on The Path.